I would say that's been the biggest single takeaway for me in writing about psychology for more for 20 years is that uh the way thing the way we perceive things is is often not the way they really are and that's the value of psychological research is that it can point out that our assumptions the way things feel the way things seem to us is often you know those 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 assumptions and those perceptions can mislead us Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest today is Annie Murphy-Paul. Annie is a science journalist, and she has a new book out. It's been getting a lot of press. Uh, You know, she's made the rounds on all the big idea-based podcasts, and so I listened to a bunch of them in prep for this episode. Three of my favorites were her talks with Adam Grant, Ezra Klein, and Scott Barry Kaufman. Fun fact, uh, actually, AMP was, was, believe it or not, SBK's very first guest on his podcast. I, I didn't know that, and so that was, that was kind of cool. But at any rate, they are all great discussions. Uh, I totally recommend them. Uh, but in, in our episode here, I tried to broach some new territory that isn't covered in those other conversations. So let me start by sort of giving a brief overview of the, the fundamental argument of her book. It is about rethinking the way we talk about the mind. So her book is called The Extended Mind, and its starting point is a paper of the same title by two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers. The basic line of argument is that we tend to think of the mind as this fundamentally bounded entity where the bounds of thought are essentially between one's ears. These philosophers, Annie and the relevant academic literature, are saying, well, actually, no. When you start to scrutinize the assumptions that underlie that idea, the position doesn't really hold up as well as you might expect. Um, You know, when when it comes down to it, our minds are really inextricable from the world around us. And so Annie's book is all about diving into why this is the case and how it's changed the way we interact with the world around us. In uh, my preparation for this discussion, I revisited this, uh, you know, the original Clark and Chalmers paper from 1998. And so the points of that paper, as they see it, is an argument against semantic externalism. And so Semantic externalism is a philosophical position about whether the meaning of a word resides in our heads or in the world. Um, So it's a pretty fine-grained distinction, but a a fairly important one, it turns out, in the philosophy of mind. And so uh, some famous philosophers like Hilary Putnam and Tyler Burge advanced this externalist position in the sort of like, I guess you could say 1970s and, and maybe a little bit more recently in some cases, but with the key soundbite being Putnam's fav- uh, famous quote, cut the pie any way you like, meaning just ain't in the head. Um, so in particular, Putnam has this famous thought experiment. It is called Twin Earth. And it, it, you know he and his contemporaries use this as an argument that internalism is false and externalism is true. Uh, meaning just ain't in the head. So uh, Clark and Chalmers are, are kind of saying, look, it's not just that that meaning, that the you know sort of semantic underpinnings of words 
isn't in the head. It's actually all of cognition. And they call this position active externalism. Uh, there's this quote from the paper that I really love. It is uh, Clark and Chalmers talking about the details of the twin earth thought experiment. Quote, when I believe that water is wet and my twin believes that twin water is wet, the external features responsible for the difference in our beliefs are distal and historical at the other end of a lengthy causal chain. Features of the present are not relevant. If I happen to be surrounded by XYZ right now, maybe I have teleported to twin earth, my belief still concerns standard water because of my history. In these cases, the relevant external features are passive. Um, and they continue from there, but I, I just love how, uh, even though I only have a modest notion of whatever the hell they're talking about, the more sophisticated a philosophical argument is, the deeper it gets into the finer points of just how wet water on Twin Earth is. And, you know, if you were doused in it, would it feel equivalently, equivalently wet to substance XYZ? And, you know, how would you even know whether it's you or your twin that, that really feels this wetness? Um, but at any rate, what Clark and Chalmers are saying is that our relationship to the people, the objects, the tools in our environment is not passive. We are actively thinking through the environment uh, in, in very much similar way to how we're thinking through our neurons. And they give the example of Tetris and how, you know, when you're moving the shapes on the screen, you're actually rotating them and seeing if they fit rather than thinking about how they might fit and then rotating them accordingly. So that is a microcosm of how we are using the world around us to actually structure the contents of our thoughts. Anyway, uh, you know, so that's a, a primer on the, the philosophical origins of this concept. Uh, in my actual conversation with Annie, which will uh, come up in just a minute here, we also talk about how our minds extend into our social surroundings, why writing is a form of memory, the important ideas about the extent of mind that people tend to gloss over, how this concept should affect American education, and how this concept how this concept changes the way we think about other people. We also battle it out over whether a dual monitor computer setup actually works like a second brain. So it was a fun conversation and I really hope you enjoy it. I would very much appreciate if you would consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. You can find that at codycommerce.substack.com. It is the best way to keep up with all my work as well as the latest episodes of Cognitive Revolution. Uh, in my writing there, which you'll get every Friday, I try to make a deeper connection between our sort of theoretical understanding of life as it's informed by things like cognitive science and psychology and our on-the-ground experience of life itself. So uh, please do consider subscribing. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's, it's a big help to support my, my future work and the podcast. So that's available at codycommerce.substack.com. For other ways to support, you can also leave a five-star review on iTunes or Spotify. That actually helps a ton in bringing in new listeners. Thank you for listening. And without any further ado, here is Annie Murphy-Paul. So yeah, I guess maybe we can start off by talking about kind of the basics. So where, where did you come across this idea in the academic literature? Yeah, so I actually kind of um, stumbled on the article that introduced the idea of the extended mind to the world, this article by Andy Clark and David Chalmers, two philosophers, 
that came out in 1998. I, I read it many years later and I was looking at that time for some kind of big idea that was gonna pull together these um, bodies of research that had become very intriguing to me and that I felt on some level were were related to each other, but I couldn't quite put my finger on how they were related. And I'm talking about things like embodied cognition, the idea that our, you know we think with our bodies as well as our, our, our brains, um, situated cognition, the idea that where we are um, affects the way we think and socially distributed cognition, the idea that thinking doesn't just go on in one person's mind, it goes on among groups of people or pairs of people. And these all seemed like really interesting ways to think about thinking. And as I say, related to each other, but I didn't really know how to pull them all together until I stumbled across this article in a philosophy journal um, analysis. And you know, the first line of the article is um, um, it was very it was arresting to me. It was said, "Where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin?" And that seemed like just a super interesting question. So I read on, and in fact, that idea of the extended mind became the the spine of of my book. It became the um, the big idea that drew together all these um, very disparate findings that. I felt could could be uh, gathered together under the umbrella of the extended mind. So this is kind of a, a meta point, but I, I think I want to introduce this earlier on in our, our conversation. And uh, the question that I kind of want to ask here is, how do you, like, what is your process for coming across a paper like that? Um, and particularly from the perspective of you've talked about how your role as a science writer, as opposed to, you know, an academic professor with a particular area of specialization is essentially synthesis. But you're saying, okay, here's what the embodied cognitive people are saying. Here's what the learning people are saying. You know, here's some other disparate elements. How do I bring them together into what amounts to a coherent story? So I'm interested to kind of put this in as a part of our, our conversation as it plays out. What does that process kind of look like for you? And, and what's, uh, you know, at a concrete level, what are you doing when you like, how, how do you, how do you personally go through the scientific literature like that? Yeah, well, you know, it, it depends on the project. If I'm writing an article that's due, you know, next week, I, my process is very targeted and I'm reading in a very directed way uh, to, to uh, there's a very, you know, direct connection between what I'm reading and what's going to go into the article. If I'm writing a book, um, which is necessarily just a much bigger kind of undertaking, I, I try to read very widely at the beginning. And I would even say, uh, you know, much to my editor's frustration, um, during the middle and the end of, of, of writing the book, I'm still reading a lot because I, first of all, I love research. I love getting excited about new ideas. You know, I, I work in a field, science writing, where there's a constant flow of new research. And, you know, it, it can feel a bit like you know, running on a hamster wheel and not getting anywhere because um, you never get to the end of it. You know, there's always there's always a new paper, and that's that's something that science writers have to, and others who write about academic research have to, at some point, say. You know, I've laid out a framework, hopefully through which any future uh, findings can be interpreted. I but I can't keep up with it. Um, you know. Uh, every moment. So when I'm writing a book, as as I um, as I was with the extended mind, um, I'm reading 
widely with hopefully with an open mind and pondering. I'm a real ponderer, you know, in the sense of like, I need to let things sit for a while and um, ideas or connections are just as likely to come to me when I'm sitting at a red light as when I'm, you know, or, or taking a walk or something as when I'm literally sitting at my desk working. So I find you just kind of have to put a lot of material into the pipeline, you know, and the mind, I mean, this is what's amazing about human intelligence. And, and it's something I touch on in the, um, in the book, the extended mind is that human intelligence, um, it doesn't just take in information and store it and keep it just as it is, as a, as a, a computer often does. And, and that's why computers are so great at reminding us of an appointment or something. You know, it doesn't, we don't, a computer doesn't misremember a Thursday for a Friday, you know, the way our own brains do. But you could look at the fact that the human brain digests material, it changes material, it enhances material and makes connections among different um, pieces of information as this enormous advantage and this enormous um, benefit of human intelligence. So as I say, my process such as it is, is to load a lot of stuff in the pipeline and kind of let it all marinate and um, give it some time, give it some pondering. And then, you know, hopefully something <laughs> uh, fresh or original or new or interesting will, will come out the other side. That's That's how I count on it working. So it sounds like part of the source of your editor's consternation there is that you, uh, it, from what I understand, you got pretty far into writing a book on learning, or that's what you originally thought you were. That is right. Uh, was the topic that you were you were tackling? Yes. And then uh, you kind of had this moment where I was like, "Oh man, I'm not sure what the thread that ties to the things that I've been looking for. What is what is the really books the book size headline here?" Uh, and that's where Andy Clark and David Chalmers came in uh, and gave you, hey, guess what? You know the mind. Well, get, well, no, 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 you don't. That actually, you think it, you think it's between the ears, but actually, it's all right. this. That uh, is that yeah. is correct. Yeah, yeah. I had started writing out. I had started out writing a book about the science of learning, which is very interesting, but um, not in the end, uh, a place where I could find the big idea that I was looking for. And as a writer, that is something I not only want, but I have found that I really need. And if it's not there, I just, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad books in the world. There's a lot of books that don't need to be published. And I didn't want to add another one to that pile. So, um, I was really looking for, a transformative idea, an idea that could change uh, our paradigms or challenge our paradigms of, of um, through which we understand the world. And the extended mind is, is an idea like that. You know, you, you, it can, we can debate whether it's uh, valid or not, you know, and some people, um, you know, do, do question the, the tenets of the extended mind and that's fine. But I think it's, it's hard to argue with the fact that it is a radical idea. It's a, provocative idea. It's one that really um, cuts against the current or the grain of how we're used to thinking about the mind. And that to me is exciting enough to keep me going in terms of, of writing a book. And yes, that, that can be frustrating to editors because um, uh, 
I, I need that to, to complete a book. And if it's not there, then I, then it's, it's no dice. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned this Andy Clark, uh, David Chalmers paper in in pretty much every, you know, every interview, uh, about the book and everything that I've listened to. And so I went back and I read the, the original paper because it is, it is a classic paper and it's, it's pretty well known. And I was kind of interested in this question, I guess, uh, you know, for me, Andy Clark is, he's an interesting figure in cognitive science because at least in my sort of, you know, participation in it, his work is well known and embodied cognition generally as like a super broad concept has gained a lot of traction recently. But I do feel like a lot of cognitive science people still kind of dismiss this work in the way that they're kind of like, well, yeah, it's, it's probably true. Um, but in a kind of trivial way, uh, uh, you know, of course there's stuff beyond the mind, but the real action, believe me, it's still in the head. That's kind of how I feel cognitive scientists treat embodied cognition. Um, but so I guess I'm curious, what is your, what is your personal hypothesis about why this idea, this very arresting idea didn't gain novel, didn't gain as much traction, uh, 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 you know, in, in the, the past 25 years as, as, as it has now that your, your book's bringing it to the, the larger table. Oh. <laughs> I, two thoughts come to mind, you know, one is that, um, the theory of the extended mind, although I think of it as an, a very practical and, um, down to earth kind of, uh, you know, that may sound strange, but it, it's, it's actually, um, it's, it's a very, directly applicable kind of idea, directly applicable to our, the way we engage in thinking and the way we um, go about our learning and our work. That was very much what I wanted to show in the book was all the ways in which we're already thinking outside the brain. We're already um, using our extended mind. So um, although it is a very, as I say, practical, pragmatic kind of idea, I think, you know, it was introduced in a rather obscure philosophy journal by two academic philosophers. And for the first 20 years of its existence, all the debates around it seemed to be inside baseball kind of debates within philosophy. You know, when, okay, is is the mind extended? When is it extended? What are the conditions under which it can be extended? These were not questions that were going to grab the average, you know, person by the collar and say, this is, this is something you should care about, you know? And I, when I came along and decided to write a, a popular book about the extended mind, I really felt like this idea is too good to be left to the philosophers. This is an idea that could enrich everybody's life if it were made accessible. And if it were tied to all these fascinating findings about uh, you know, thinking with our bodies and with physical spaces and with other people. I mean, these are these. This is the stuff of everyday life. You know, I mean, this is this is not some kind of abstruse. Like, you know, this is not like wondering about consciousness or I don't know some of the 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 kind of debates within philosophy that really are hard to tie to everyday life, like um, gestures and movement or you know, going outside or arranging your office or, you know, how you interact with um, your colleagues or your um, or your manager or your teacher, things like that. that. Those are things that people do every day. So I think there needed to be a bridge built from the really, um, 
abstruse esoteric elements of the the extended mind to that everyday experience and that bridge was in a sense easy to build because um the extended mind is really just saying take a look at who we already are take a look at what we're already doing you know um and the other reason i think that perhaps it didn't it wasn't embraced, um, you know, although for an idea within philosophy, it, it definitely, you know, has gotten a lot of attention over the years. But I, I think for some people, this idea is threatening. And I've encountered this a number of times when I've been talking about the extended mind. We are such an individualistic society. We so treasure the idea that we each have our own personal allotment of talents and abilities. And that's what determines our outcomes in life. That's how our whole society is set up. And so to say, as Clark and Chalmers do, and as I say in, in my book, no, actually, it's like your yourself, your abilities, uh, your capacities, those are all a lot more permeable and porous than you think. You're actually a creature of the world, as Clark and Chalmers say. And so much of what you're able to do intellectually is based on your access to the raw materials of thought and to what you know about putting those raw materials together into intelligent thought. And um, there are people who don't like to to uh, to hear that, I think, because it almost seems to be saying to them, your achievements, your accomplishments are not yours alone. And people really want to keep their achievements and their accomplishments, you know, to themselves. So I, I think that that's one reason why there's almost an emotional resistance to the idea of the extended mind. Another thing that occurs to me there is that if you ask this question, what is the mind? And to some extent, when you ask that question, you're saying, well, what am, what am I? What is, what is my identity? Uh, what's, what makes me me? When the answer is, here it is, you know, in my head right here, I can shake it around and, and, and you know, feel it in there. That gives a, a boundedness to the definition of the mind. And when you start to say, well, no, actually the mind transcends that, uh, that particular barrier, it becomes a lot more nebulous uh, uh, of a concept. And I think it, that also just makes it harder to understand what exactly that means. And so I guess I want to try and get a little bit more purchase on that. And to get to part of, you know, one of the, one of the ways you've looked at this, um, one of the things that got me start think, uh, to start thinking about this topic was getting into anthropology, the, like the, just, you know, sort of generally reading in the field. Because, you know, my training is as a cognitive scientist. I'm a PhD student in, you know, experimental psychology. And so the idea that the mind is identical to the brain, it just, it's sort of doctrine for me in the way that, you know, uh, I've always thought about things. And then, you know, when you get interested in anthropology, it's like, okay, here is, is this group of scholars who are interested in the core questions of human experience, of human behavior, but not only do they not need recourse to the brain, they don't even need recourse to the mind. It doesn't, it doesn't, it barely even comes up. And so that, when I sort of realized that, I was like, whoa, well, wait, how can you talk so much about human behavior without, you know, talking about uh, the mind? And that's what sort of like beginning, began to make me sympathetic to this argument. So can you draw that out a little bit with some of the research that you talk about on how, uh, our extended mind is defined by our social surroundings, our social environment. Yeah, this is um, a key point in the extended mind and one that, um, again, cuts across, cuts against our 
very individualistic ethos. Um, you know, I was I was myself surprised um, by to read some of this research and and was challenged in my own assumptions by this research because I've been a freelance writer for more than twenty years and I've I've I, I work in a very solitary way. You know, I occasionally um, interact with an editor, but I'm I'm really thinking to myself most of the time, and so it was a surprise for me to learn how very fundamentally social our cognitive capacities are, how they of course develop socially, but how they are by their very nature social. I mean, even when we're thinking, we're thinking in our heads with a language that we learned by participating in a human community, you know? And there's so much that we know um, only by virtue of believing other people, you know, by believing that the testimony of, of other people, like there's, there's my own direct experience of the world is so limited as, as is everyone's. And so there's so much that we take for granted as our own knowledge, which when you, you examine it is really just taking somebody else's word for it, you know? So, um, I was challenged by this, um, this notion that that um, our thinking is itself essentially social, and then um, in the ways that I expanded it in the in the extended mind, I looked at um, thinking with experts and how we, uh, as novices, as beginners, as learners, um, how the transfer of of knowledge from one brain or mind to another, how that happens and how we can do it better than we are currently doing it. Um, I looked at how we think with peers and how, um, again, how fundamentally social uh, thinking is and how, but how we, we make the mistake of thinking that social life and intellectual life are somehow separate and maybe even uh, opposed, you know, so that we we separate them in our workplaces and in our, in our schools when really we should be harnessing that powerful social brain that we all have in the service of, of learning and working um, through activities like storytelling and arguing and debating and um, teaching other people. And then finally, I looked at um, thinking with groups, and this was probably the most uh, challenging to me, um, for me to, to really, um, accept because, uh, I think, uh, you know, people who are freelance writers, people who kind of are, are social critics, as I think of myself as being, have a kind of often have a, um, people who, who work outside of institutions as I do often, are there because we have a certain distrust of groups, of groupthink, of the of the damage and the destruction that people can do um, <laughs> in groups, and we feel um, like there's a certain virtue in being a, a solitary thinker. And so, some of the research that I read about uh, the power of synchronized movement, for example, the way that moving at the same time um, in the same way as other people seems to blur the um, the distinctions um, between people, among people, such that they feel like they're a bigger entity. They feel expanded. They feel more powerful. They feel um, a part of a, a larger entity rather than just, than just their small selves. And there's something that's really appealing about that, of course. And there's also something that's very scary about that. So um, to me, 
es- looking especially at the social element of of thinking with other people was um was very challenging and and very edifying because it's um those many of those findings really cut against what I had brought into the writing process and I did find myself changed by the um my my thoughts and my assumptions changed by the research that I did for the book so I want to kind of draw out your experience as a freelance writer a little bit more. So uh, I guess from from my perspective, you, you said, you know, you've spent 20 years sort of in that in that job. And I am coming towards the end of my degree program. And I'm looking at the, you know, sort of track of academia. And I'm like, no, nah, I think I'm going to pass on that. That doesn't, that that's, A, uh, it's just not a, the job market's atrocious. But then B, also, the way that I relate to academic material is really more from a narrative perspective. That's ultimately what I want to do. So at any rate, I'm staring down the barrel of, you know, kind of, diving into, you know, what potentially could be a, a majority sort of freelance career doing, you know, writing and podcasting and, the, and these sort of things. So is there, like you said, it can be very solitary. Is there something that you would have employed at knowing what you know now at the beginning of that process um, or anything you would have changed, you know, kind of in, in, you know, the position closer to like where I am now. Is there anything like that, that, that comes to mind for you? Well, I'll tell you about one thing that I did do right. And um, there are many things I did wrong and I, we can get into those too. But, uh, one thing I did right that's been an enormous source of support for me over the course of it's now 18 years is I, with a friend, a writer friend, I was living in New York at the time. We we started a writers group that has been meeting monthly for 18 years now. And uh, for people who don't have uh, colleagues, for people who who work on their own, um, to have a group like that um, is it's been such a a lifeline for for many of us. Um, and we don't. Um, read each other's work. It's not like a, it's not like a, a group where we critique each other's work. We all have more than enough to read already. It's, it's more like a, a combination of group therapy and mutual aid society. It's actually a really good um, demonstration of, of thinking in a social way, because although each of us has knows only our own little corner of the publishing world or the journalism world, when we join together and help each other, we actually just multiply exponentially what we can know about the industry and about how it's changing or about how to make our way through the industry in a successful way. And it's just also um, just emotionally so um, grounding to have this group of people, you know, we celebrate each other's accomplishments and we acknowledge each other's and um, sympathize and help with each other's challenges and struggles. So it's just, that's been, uh, I'm not sure that I could have been freelance for 20 years without that. Um, I The thing I would say, if I could speak to my um, younger self, would be that um, I think I was a, a little afraid of people and in particular afraid of asking for help. And what I have found is that if you approach people um, in the spirit of would you please share your your expertise and your um your knowledge with me? People are almost always, you know, very happy to help. Um, and the, that's actually backed up by research, but um, but I've found that to be true in my own life. And I think um 
you know, I, I've taught students uh, nonfiction writing a number of times, and I find that they they too are a little um, they're they're often held back by their um, reluctance to reach out. Um, they're they often and I I did this too. I made this mistake too. They will read and read and read and think that they can gather everything that they need to know on the internet. When if they just gave an expert or a, a researcher a call, they could cut through all of that and they could know so much more quickly what matters and what doesn't um, by going to the source, by going to the um, the person who can respond to them in a way that, um, that they're never going to to find by endlessly sort of trawling through resources on the web. And of course, students these days, young people these days are so used to finding whatever they want on the web that it doesn't always occur to them that the most efficient and effective way to get up to speed on a topic is to is, is to talk to somebody, you know? So um, my biggest um, advice to my former self and advice to my students is um, don't be afraid to pick up the phone. Don't be afraid to reach out to someone. Um, there's a little bit of a thick skin you have to develop, but that you'll, you know, that just comes with the territory uh, <laughs> one way or another, you'll have to develop that thick skin. So you might as well um, be reaching out and, and reaping the benefits of that along with the occasional rejection. Yeah, that's, that's really nice. I, I like that a lot. I want to go back to another thing that I, I found really compelling as just sort of like, oh, wow, and, uh, like one of those kind of moments in, in the whole, you know, where does the mind, uh, you know, where does the mind end uh, question? And that's the, the, the act, the, uh, the process of writing itself. And, you know, so psychologically, we're sort of comfortable with this idea of short-term memory, of working memory, where you have this thing that you're sort of keeping, you know, thoughts in mind. Then you have long-term memory, which is the kind of, you know, the storage where, you know, uh, once things are, you know, consolidated after short memory, they are put into long memory. And uh, we think of that as like, okay, that's human memory. But writing is also a continuation of those same forms of memory um, in that you are having a way of, of storing, of, in this case, externalizing meaningful symbols. And this seems, when you start to, to pick it apart, like it's not actually substantively different from human memory, just like when we sort of take things out of short-term memory uh, and put them in the long-term memory. When we write things down, we often liberate them from our long-term memory itself because we know, okay, well, that's where the information is. I don't need to keep it in here. It's right down there. And that seemed to me like a really like, oh, wow, my intuition about what constitutes memory doesn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily mean that 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 how how it how it how it actually works right mhm mm mhm mm yeah. i would say that's been the biggest single takeaway for me in writing about psychology for more for 20 years is that <laughs> Uh, the way thing, the way we perceive things is is often not the way they really are, and that's the value of psychological research is that it can point out that our assumptions, the way things feel, the way things seem to us, is often, you know, those 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 assumptions and those perceptions can mislead us, and so, um, you know. I, I partly, I think you could say that what you've just been talking about is, is you could describe that as, as a species of cognitive offloading, right? The idea that um, we, 
uh, we try to do too much in our heads and um, it's actually much more efficient and effective to get those thoughts out of our heads onto physical space in one form or another. And we can actually relate to our thoughts differently once we, um, once we get them out of our head, which again was a kind of lesson that I had to learn by writing this book because I'm, I'm someone who lives in my head a lot. And um, the benefits of cognitive offloading are not immediately, uh, well, uh, they're, they're not, they, we don't see them, we don't anticipate them um, in advance. And often people imagine that doing things in their heads will be faster and will be more effective and is the way that smart people do things, you know? So that's another example of um, research being able to show us a reality that's different from the one that we might have assumed would be true. So you've, you've made the rounds on so many podcasts talking about all these ideas. I'm curious, is there anything that you feel like you would have expected to come up, but people don't ask about, um, uh, or, you know, th something that comes up that people pick up on more than you would have expected is like, Oh, I didn't think they'd be excited as excited about that. Is there any, is there anything that falls into either of those categories? Mm. I've been, even though, you know, I referenced this earlier in our conversation that, that I, I, um, I wanted to get past the, 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 I think I, what I thought were, um, sort of, um, technical philosophical debates about is the mind really extended or not? And uh, I was hoping that we could get past that to, to, to get to the really exciting aspects uh, of the extended mind that are available once you kind of go with the idea that the extended mind actually exists. But I've been surprised by how little people are interested in, in those, uh, in the debates that have dominated philosophy's uh, engagement with the, the extended mind idea for, for many years. Like nobody's really asked me about, um, well, under what conditions is the mind extended, you know? And there's there's been so many, many debates about um, the, as I say, the sort of technical philosophical bounds uh, or conditions um, that we can or can't place on the extended mind. And people, you know, people listening to podcasts or reading my book just don't seem to care. And that's been striking to me that once I explain the idea that we think with our bodies, with spaces, with other people, it seems um, intuitive. It seems uh, actually sort of um, common sense in a way. And it's been amusing to me that, um, you know, I wrote a piece for the New York Times uh, that was sort of a summary of this, an overview of my argument. And I ventured into the comment section, which is never a good idea, but it, <laughs> it amused me that half, about half of the comments said, this makes no sense. And the other half of them said, this is so obvious. So, you know, it's kind of like, Oh God, you can't win, you know, but, but in a way that's, that's, it's true. Like it, but it, um, it makes no sense in this, in the, if, if you're, um, coming at the extended mind from the, the very conventional individualistic, you know, the mind is the brain perspective, the extended mind is going to be very disorienting, but it's also obvious in the sense that yes, of course, our bodies are part of the way we think. And of course, you know, the, where we are affects how we think. And of course we think with other people. And so one of the most surprising or gratifying and or gratifying um, kinds of responses that I've gotten to the book is from people who say, 
your book made me feel seen. Your book affirmed my way of thinking and my way of being in the world. These were things that I had found my way to already, um, these techniques or these approaches. And you kind of said, yes, you're onto something. And you, uh, you provided the scientific evidence to, to back me up too. So that was a surprise to me because my experience of researching the extended mind while writing the book was like, was one of almost continual surprise. Like, oh my gosh, that's, I never thought of that, you know, but lots of people seem to, especially interestingly, teachers, people in education and people in the arts. Um, because I think these are groups of people who've, they've always been thinking with the body. They've always been thinking in terms of spaces. They've always been thinking with collaborate collaborations and interactions among people. So you know, what I wrote about in the extended mind was not so much a, a surprise for them as a, as an affirmation of what they had already found their way to on their own. And that was, that was very interesting to me as an author. Hey, Cody here. So as I've mentioned on the show before, I am graduating from my PhD program pretty soon here, hopefully in spring 2022. And while that's great, it also means I have to start making plans for my next phase. And ideally, I'd like to do this. I'd like to podcast and write and be able to achieve at least a semblance of what looks like a next career step producing this kind of work. So it is time for me to take the pod from something that merely exists to the next level. And part of what this entails is that I am going to be offering a premium subscription to my podcasts and writing. So one of the questions that I've been asking myself recently is, what have I learned from doing this podcast and how has it affected me personally? And so I am starting a segment called CogRev Redux, in which I listen back to my catalog of episodes starting from my first interview over two years ago. And I edit down the original to a 30-minute show featuring the highlights of what that guest said and, and what really stuck with me over that time, as well as my own reflections on where I was when the interview was conducted, what I was interested in, and how that's all changed. And I will also go into any backstory I have with the guest or strange behind the scenes antics that happened during the taping that didn't make the final cut. So I will offer two free CogRev Redux episodes in January. Then from there, they will come out for premium subscribers every other week. With the premium subscription, you also get my series called Reviewed. It's Reviewed in which I revisit, reread, or reconsider the books, movies, podcasts, or other content that has most impacted me throughout the years. In this show, I love to ask people about the books that have most influenced their thinking, and so now I want to explore my own answers to those questions in greater depth. There's also a new series I'm launching called The Grad Student's Guide to Podcasting. It features everything I've learned while doing Cognitive Revolution through my PhD, as well as interviews with other graduate student podcasters. That will be coming out throughout January 2022. Anyway, like I said, this is part of me building out toward my next phase, so I really do appreciate the support. If you are interested in signing up for a subscription, you can check out codycommerce.substack.com. 
That's codycommerce.substack.com. Even if you just sign up for the free version, it helps a ton to support my future work. Okay, thank you for hearing me out. Now back to the show. I want to pick up on the conditions thing. One of the things that I guess has sort of been on my mind in in, in reading your, your your work on this topic is what is the what is the what is really the counter hypothesis? And one of them is like, well, you know, there's the mind and it's just in the head and there's just, you know, nothing else matters. It's just, it's just little computations up there. And okay, I can see why that's fairly easy to argue against. Um, uh, but maybe there's another sort of alternative hypothesis here, which is, you know, maybe what you're alluding to more with the, the conditions thing. So, okay, so here's, here's a situation in which cognition really is extended in, in a certain way. And here's where there's a little bit more, uh, a more limited definition of, of cognition is, 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 is relative. So can you start to help me understand what that looks like? Yeah, I think, um, the, the art, the counter argument that I hear most often is, um, people will say, yes, I can see how the mind, which, you know, they're still identifying that with the brain, um, the mind thinks with gestures or thinks with movements or thinks with objects in the physical world or thinks with other people. But that doesn't mean that thinking encompasses those things. The, the thinking is still happening up here. You know, that's there's a very strong attachment to the brain as the single exclusive locus of thinking. And um you know, people have a perfect right to, to, to think that way and to believe that. But I, um, you know, following Clark and Chalmers who have laid out what they call the parity principle, I encourage them to think about this. If, if the process is one, the, the thinking process is one that if it happened in the head, we would have no problem calling that cognition then why, um, why call it something different? Why exclude it you know, from the, the thinking process, if it happens somewhere else, just if, because it happens to happen somewhere else, um, you know, out in the world. And I think something that has really helped the, helped along the, the acceptance, the general acceptance of the, the extended mind hypothesis or, or theory, and that has made, uh, has, has sort of prepared the ground for my own book, um, for a popular version of, of the theory, um, is just the way we use technology. You know, I mean, we are so used to offloading our mental functions, a huge chunk of our mental functions onto our technology these days. And we see how we uh, effectively aren't doing that thinking anymore. Um, we don't remember our phone numbers because our phone remembers them for us, for example. So we can see it's it's just like a daily kind of proof of concept um, demonstration when we see that there's something that used to be a mental function that used to go on in here happening somewhere outside our brains in our, in our phones and in our interactions with our phones. And so I think that that makes the idea that thinking is not restricted to the brain a lot more palatable uh, for people to, who are encountering the idea for the first time. So one, let me see if I understand that part of one way to understand embodied uh, cognition in the extended mind is that 
our minds are in constant relation to the technology that surrounds us, whether that is a stick for, you know, doing whatever, whether that's the game of Tetris, like, you know, Clark and Chalmers talk about in, in their paper, um, whether that is our, our iPhone. And so the uh, things that our body can, the things that our extended mind can do are dependent upon the things that are in front of us. So whether that's, so technology is one thing, our social environment and the people around us, their level of expertise, maybe even their level of interest in what we have to say and, and vice versa, that sort of thing. So that's a point of variation in the extent to which our, um, uh, our minds extend further or, or, or less. It, it depends on what we actually have to interact with in our hmm. immediate cognitive environment. Is that... Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I mean, I really endorsed that point. And that was one that I, I made in the, in the book, but I, in some ways I wish I'd emphasize more, which is that if it's true that we think with the stuff of the world and not just with what's inside our brains, then the quality of the stuff of the world that we, and we individually have access to really matters, you know, and I, I talk in the book about extension inequality and um how you know i i think along with wealth inequality or income inequality we should be concerned with um the huge disparities in the raw materials that people have to think with you know if you believe in the theory of the extended mind and i do then suddenly the stuff that people have available to them or don't have available to, to them to think with really matters. And we need to see that we have a kind of blind spot for the disparities in uh, access to extensions because of our belief, uh, our conviction that that all that matters is up here, you know, that it's all um, it's all about that lump of, of stuff in your head and not about um, the raw materials that you're assembling into your thought processes, which is what the uh, how the extended mind would describe the thinking process. So let's dive into some of those more practical things. This is maybe a little bit, you know, more off the wall, but if you were magically installed as the public education czar of the United States, um, you know, because one of the things you talked a lot about is uh, education. And I know that's, you know, like uh, something that matters in your own life with, with your with your kids and and something you've definitely thought a lot about in this context. So if, if that were your position, you could like now do whatever you want. What are the first one or two major decrees that you would make for, for our students? And feel free to pick the age range, uh, you know, based off of, of, of what you studied with the extended mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, my general approach as czar, um, you know, and I'm feeling really all the power of that position right now, um, <laughs> would be to try to encourage teachers and administrators not to see students as brains on legs, you know, that they're, that they are whole, whole organisms, you know, uh, whole entities with bodies embedded, embedded in physical space, um, connected to social networks and to use all of those things, um, in, in, in the process of educating them. So, the first thing I would do might be something like bring a whole lot more of a whole lot more movement and physical activity and gesture and freedom of, of movement to classrooms, not have kids be sitting at desks in rows, um, 
you know, building a lot more recess and, and um, physical activity time into the, into the school day. Um, I'd love to have a commission that would redesign all the schools of, you know, <laughs> you know, absolute power is, 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 is a dangerous thing, but um, I would redesign all the schools that um, in the U S to um, well, first of all, to have a lot more natural light, a lot more views of nature um, to be filled with cues of belonging and cues of identity that support um, students feeling of themselves and their connections with other people that I would um, redesign the schools to give students a sense of ownership and, and power over their own spaces. Um, and then I would um, try, I would try to find ways to bring as much social activity into the classroom as possible to break down this wall that we've put up between social life and intellectual or academic life and um, fill classrooms with activities that involve storytelling and teaching and arguing and debating, some of which, of course, already goes on. But, um, you know, I and finally, I think I would and this is I don't know if this is happening during the age of COVID because that complicates everything, but remembering that, um, again, students are not just individuals, they are potentially members of groups. And the fact that human beings are able to act in groups and think in groups is an enormously powerful resource that we're not really using right now. Um, and it needs to be used carefully, but I would like to find ways to allow the nation's students to, to think together in groups, in part because that's so much of what is needed in the world after school. You know, um, the world's problems are so complicated and so daunting that we really need to think together in in um, in groups characterized by collective intelligence. You know, we can't really solve these problems as individuals. So, I would love to see students learning how to do that, how to think in groups really effectively, um, starting in school, so that they're not learning that later on the job or not learning that on the job um, and so that they emerge from school with that capacity, um, which is something we so need in our society. So that that would be my to-do list for my, you know, my, my first week as czar. This is beyond your purview as education czar, <laughs> but it seems like the part of the reason for why our classrooms look like that is that our professional environments look like that, right? And, and, you know, if, if we didn't know what you were talking about to hear you describe, oh, well, we have lots of this, but not enough of this, you could just as well be defining, you know, the average office environment as well. And um, so it seems like there's a larger scale, you know, the, I think this goes back to the philosophical conception of it all. I mean, if we are in our society thinking of ourselves as these individualized entities, then it makes sense to be able to just sort of have like, here's your cubicle, here's your desk, right? go right, to town. Right. That's, mm -hmm. that's all you need. Um, right. And so there's something really at odds between the way we have constructed our society in the, in the, in the sort of philosophical underpinning of it and, and what you're bringing to the table in your argument. I agree. And I would add that COVID, the pandemic, our experience of the pandemic has thrown a lot of this into the air. It has really, as everyone knows, radically disrupted the way people 
do their work um, such that we don't really know how all the pieces are going to land or how they're going to be put together once the pandemic is over. And so I think it's an enormous opportunity to rethink how we work, how we learn with an awareness that the way we were doing it before uh, wasn't working that great before and is certainly not adequate now. And and the pandemic has given us a lot of opportunities to see that, um, uh, you know, for example, all those people who thought they had, all those managers who thought their employees had to be in the office to to, to be productive, um, learned otherwise when, when people went home and started working um, from their own homes. So I think as we uh, reinvent the office for a post-pandemic era, we can take some of those lessons that we learned, you know, not because anyone wanted to, but because they were forced upon us by the pandemic. Um, and for example, perhaps design offices to be the place where that social thinking and learning happens where, while the, um, the, the home environment where people will continue to work part of the time can become the place where people have that protected, isolated, deep work time. That That's my, my own model, my own ideal model of how we would um, incorporate what we know about the benefits of what's called intermittent collaboration, that we don't want to be collaborating all the time, but we also don't want to be isolated all the time. And could it be that this new movement between home and work where we're not, uh, we, we work in both places at, on different days, could that support um, you know, an ideal kind of arrangement um, that really suits the way people uh, people's people's minds work, um, needing that time to think alone and also needing that time to interact with others. You know, that that's just one example of how I think the pandemic for all the destruction and and um, tragedy it's caused has also has also opened up some new opportunities and some new avenues for rethinking how we how we do things. There's something I want to touch on here as we get toward the end, which is I think there's an an, an implication of your ideas in the extended mind that, that I haven't seen uh, explored quite as much. And that's if if our minds aren't this one sort of centralized processor, then not only does that change the way that that we think about our own minds, but it should also change the way we think about the minds of others. And um, particularly what I'm thinking of here is that, um, so uh, we try to understand other people's perspectives through their internal mental dispositions. Kind of like, okay, here's their point of view. Literally in that phrase, point of view, it's like, here is the dot where their mind is, and then they see, they see everything from that. And so when we're trying to ha- understand how someone thinks, and we have that mental model going in, if we share a context with that person, if we share common knowledge, if we share a social background, same cultural, you know, sort of milieu, whatever it is, then this isn't really an issue. The extended mind doesn't really come into play because any extension is a kind of commonality. But if that person exists in a vastly different context from our own, if they have different religious beliefs, different political, you know, beliefs, whatever it is, um, then if we don't have this mental model of the uh, extended mind going in, then we're totally lacking the tools that we need to make sense of what actually is going on in their head. 
which is not just going on in their head. It's going on in this whole sort of thing. And if we don't appreciate that, then we're really at a disadvantage when it comes to trying to make sense of perspectives that are different from our own. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. And of course, in our increasingly diverse world, we are encountering people with whom we don't share that context. And so it is, we are, it is, um, we are beholden, uh, or we are obligated, I would say, to to learn about those other factors that might be affecting the thinking of the people with whom we come in contact. I mean, uh, what you were saying just now makes me think of what psychologists call the fundamental attribution error, error, which is that we assume that someone else's behavior is due to some kind of internal innate innate, um, quality, but, but we know, uh, but we don't apply the fundamental attribution error to ourselves because we know we are aware uh, to some extent of all the situational influences that are coming to bear on ourselves. So in a way we're already natural experiment, uh, extended mind theorists when it comes to ourselves, but it's much harder to see uh, other people being shaped by those external factors. And we are much more likely to, um, attribute their behavior to those, those internal individualistic kind of, um, influences. So I think that's a broadening of perspective, uh, an opening of the mind that we need to practice and get good at, you know, if we are going to live in this diverse world, um, where we're encountering people who, as you say, don't, don't share with us that that common ground that we can take for granted. Yeah, it's it seems to me like in that in that uh, particular instance, the extended mind, that sort of space of theories, has a lot of explanatory power for why it seems like um, you know, especially politically, uh, but in you know, as you say, in 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 the the, the case of just an ever increasingly diverse world and contact with more different kinds of people, why it's so hard to understand people who think differently. Than you do, because thoughts are this much more convoluted and decentralized thing than we intuitively give them credit for. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and certainly to reduce people to um, something that we assume is innate or inherent in them is cognitively easier, and it's perhaps emotionally more satisfying. But it's not the most accurate way to understand others, and I don't think it's ultimately the most the way that will, you know, allow us to actually work together across divides and across difference. Um, so yeah, I, I like this. It's sort of like the extended mind could contribute to world peace. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, you've been extremely generous with your times. Uh, so I have a couple quick questions, then I'll let you go. Um, but one thing that I want to get your hot take on is so a lot of people sort of have this, uh, you know, very staunch belief that a second screen, a second computer screen is like a second brain. And um, I myself am totally unequivocally anti-second screen. I think that if you need that much visual real estate, you've got too many windows open. You've got too many tabs on your thing and you need to, you need to focus in. You need to say, this is what I'm, I'm going to stay organized. This is what I'm working on. Um, so what's your, what's your position on the second screen? Well, you're certainly entitled to that view and people have to do what works for them. Keeping in mind that we often, as we were saying earlier, don't know what works best for us. So if we just go on our impressions, so we need to do a little evidence-based research. Oh yeah. Well, enlighten me with the evidence then. Reality testing. I mean, 
Because, and what I would say to you is, um, I definitely uh, agree with you about um, not uh, what we know about cognitive load tells us that we should not overload ourselves with information. So that's, that's, that's the case, but I would just point out the potential benefits of bringing embodied resources into our thinking, even when we're, we're sitting and using technology. And that, that comes into play when we have multiple screens and we and and the information we have displayed on those screens remains stable, such that instead of um, navigating virtually, we're actually using our physical uh, embodied resources, which come resources which come so naturally to us and which we use so easily and effortlessly without adding to our cognitive load. We can literally pivot our bodies um, and use our spatial memory, for example, to remember where things are because it, it actually um, uses quite a bit of mental bandwidth to be scrolling and um, you know zooming in, zooming out, like um, figuring out where things are with your many windows. And you know, so I, I'm, I'm persuaded by the research that suggests that multiple screens and big screens uh, leads to more efficient processing because it brings in our natural uh, evolved embodied resources that we use to navigate through 3D landscapes in the real world. Well, there's no doubt. I think you're in the uh, majority on that position. Uh, so maybe I'll have to maybe I'll have to rethink my prejudice against the second screen. Okay. Uh, final thing here, Annie. What are three books that have really influenced you? Yeah. So um, I'm going to stay within my my usual um, ambit of of books that I recommend, but different titles. Um, there's a second, I often recommend Supersizing the Mind by Andy Clark, and I love Andy Clark and I love his writing. So I have to recommend another book by him, but it's a different one. It's um, Natural Born Cyborgs. And what I like about that book is that I see a lot of anxiety around the offloading that we do of our mental functions onto our technology. And Andy Clark is this just really buoyant, optimistic spirit who says, no, this is, we're already, we're already cyborgs. We're born to be cyborgs, like embrace the cyborgness, you know, and, um, and don't worry about it. Like be as um, extended as, as possible is, is the way to go. You know? So I love, I love his writing in that book. I love his ideas. So I highly recommend natural born cyborgs. Um, secondly, I would um, recommend another, a book by another philosopher named Alvin Noe, uh, it's called Out of Our Heads, and it's it is actually about consciousness, but it's about how consciousness itself is not contained in, inside the head. And it's he also has a really fantastic way with words, like Andy Clark, and it's such an intelligent, interesting book. Um, and then finally, uh, I do have to give a shout out to my favorite Buddhist writer again. <laughs> this is Mark Epstein. He has a new book called The Zen of Therapy that I'm reading right now, and it's amazing. And the overlap between Buddhism and the extended mind is really, to my mind, remarkable. So I feel like I'm I'm, I'm learning so much from this book, and it's such an enjoyable and insightful read. So I would definitely recommend that. Fantastic. Annie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. You're so welcome. This is a pleasure. Thank you. That was my conversation with Annie Murphy-Paul. Thanks for listening. So if you are a listener to this show, you probably you know have the sense that most of my episodes are not really idea-based. 
but story-based. They're not about getting into the details or the implications of a person's body of research or even their, their latest book, but the episodes are, are usually about the person and the creative process by you know which those ideas came into being. And you know by now I'd like to think that I'm fairly comfortable with the idea based or uh, the with the the, the personal you know story based interview. I think I can do a pretty good job most of the time eliciting a decently interesting version of an individual's life story. Uh, I mean an academic's life story anyway, but um you know, so one of the ways that I'm trying to grow as an interviewer and by extension to grow the show is by tackling more idea-based discussions. I guess this, one of the things that's kind of spurred this on for me is that it recently occurred to me that I can actually get the same caliber of guests as the kind of podcasts I mentioned at the beginning. So like, you know, Ezra Klein, Sam Harris, Adam Grant. And, you know, obviously I can't get everyone that they get, but... There's there's quite a bit of overlap between who I can, you know, convince to come on my show and who's been on their show. So in theory, the only real limiting factor, you know, for for me being able to run as high quality of a show as as those people do is to um you know, it's it's my ability to conduct interesting conversations, discussions. So I do want to continue to tell, you know, to have episodes that are based around people's personal narratives. But I can also start to feel the limits to that in a certain way. So I guess, yeah, you know, fuck it. One of the goals that I have, you know, for myself right now is to be as good uh, of an interviewer as, you know, someone like Ezra Klein. And uh, I'm, taking, I'm taking it on a, an episode-by-episode basis to, to try and get there. And a- Annie Murphy-Paul is a kind of, I, I think, an early instance in that, in that process. And I think there are, you know, good things and, and bad things and things that I can improve on and, and, and whatever. But, uh, you know, I'm trying to up my game. And, and this is, has been one of the first episodes where I'm really taking this mindset seriously. So um, if you have any feedback, I would love to hear it. You can always contact me uh, directly into my inbox, cody.commers.writing at gmail.com. Also commenting on my Substack or replying to any of the emails in my newsletter. If you did like this episode, uh, one of the ones I would recommend checking out from my previous catalog is my talk with Elizabeth Ricker. In a way, you know, she kind of extends her own mind through her neurohacking experiments. And it's a very personalized and in a way kind of surprising process. But I feel like there's a certain sympathy, sympathy there. Um, and if you feel like you're getting something from the show, please consider subscribing uh, or, or giving it a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. And most of all, I would really appreciate it if you could check out codycommerce.substack.com to subscribe to my newsletter or even consider purchasing a premium subscription. So thank you for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Cognitive Revolution.